Chapter Six of Cleopatra by Georg Ebers, translated by Mary J. Safford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six The men sent by Archibius to obtain news had brought back no definite information, but a short time before a royal runner had handed him a tablet from Iris requesting him to visit her the next day disquieting but fortunately as yet unverified tidings had arrived the regent was doing everything in his power to ascertain the truth but he archibius was aware of the distrust of the government and everything connected with it felt by the sailors and all the seafaring folk at the harbour an independent person like himself could often learn more than the chief of the harbour police with all his ships and men the little tablet was accompanied by a second which in the regent's name authorized the bearer to have the harbour chains raised anywhere to go out into the open sea and return without interference the messenger the overseer of archibius's galley slaves was an experienced man he undertook to have the epicurus a swift vessel which cleopatra had given to her friend ready for a voyage to the open sea within two hours the carriage should be sent for his master that no time might be lost when archibius had returned to the ladies and asked whether it would be an abuse of their hospitality if it was now nearly midnight he should still delay his departure for a time they expressed sincere pleasure and begged him to continue his narrative i must hasten he hurriedly began after eating the lunch which baron nike had ordered while he was talking with the messenger but the events of the next few years are hardly worth mentioning besides my time was wholly occupied by my studies in the museum as for cleopatra and arsinoe they stood like queens at the head of all the magnificence of the court the day on which they left our house was the last of their childhood who would venture to determine whether her father's restoration or the meeting with antony had wrought the great change which took place at that time in cleopatra just before she left us my mother had lamented that she must give her to a father like the flute-player instead of to a worthy mother for the best could not help regarding herself happy in the possession of such a daughter afterwards her character and conduct were better suited to delight men than to please a mother the yearning for peace of mind seemed over only the noisy festivals the singing and music of which there was never any cessation in the palace of the royal virtuoso seemed to weary her and at such times she appeared at our house and spent several days beneath its roof arsinoe never accompanied her her heart was sometimes won by a golden-haired officer in the ranks of the german horsemen whom gabinius had left among the garrison of alexandria sometimes by a macedonian noble among the youths who at that time performed the service of guarding the palace cleopatra lived apart from her and arsinoe openly showed her hostility from the time that she entreated her to put an end to the scandal caused by her love affairs
Cleopatra held aloof from such things. Though she had devoted much time to the magic arts of the Egyptians, her clear intellect had rendered her so familiar with the philosophy of the Hellenes that it was a pleasure to hear her converse or argue in the museum, as she often did, with the leaders of the various schools. Her self-confidence had become very strong, though while with us she said that she longed to return to the days of the peaceful garden of epicurus she devoted herself eagerly enough to the events occurring in the world and to statecraft she was familiar with everything in rome the desires and struggles of the contending parties as well as the characters of the men who were directing affairs their qualities views and aims she followed antony's career with the interest of love for she had bestowed on him the first affection of her young heart she had expected the greatest achievements but his subsequent course seemed to belie these lofty hopes a tinge of scorn coloured her remarks concerning him at that time but here also her heart had its share pompey to whom her father owed his restoration to the throne she considered a lucky man rather than a great and wise one of julius caesar on the contrary long before she met him she spoke with ardent enthusiasm though she knew that he would gladly have made egypt a roman province the greatest deed which she expected from the energetic julius was that he would abolish the republic which she hated and soar upward to tyrannize over the arrogant rulers of the world only she would fain have seen antony in his place how often in those days she used magic art to assure herself of his future her father was interested in these things especially as through them and the power of the mighty isis he expected to obtain relief from his many and severe sufferings cleopatra's brothers were still mere boys completely dependent upon their guardian pothinus to whom the king left the care of the government and their tutor theodotus a clever but unprincipled rhetorician these two men and achillas the commander of the troops would gladly have aided dionysus the king's oldest male heir to obtain the control of the state in order afterwards to rule him but the flute-player baffled their plans you know that in his last will he made cleopatra his favourite child his successor but her brother dionysus was to share the throne as her husband this caused much scandal in rome though it was an old custom of the house of ptolemy and suited the egyptians the flute-player died cleopatra became queen and at the same time the wife of a husband ten years old for whom she did not even possess the natural gift of sisterly tenderness but with the obstinate child who had been told by his counsellors that the right to rule should be his alone she also married the former governors of the country then began a period of sore suffering her life was a perpetual battle against notorious intrigues the worst of which owed their origin to her sister arsinoe had surrounded herself with a court of her own managed by the eunuch ganymedes an experienced commander and at the same time a shrewd adviser 
wholly devoted to her interest he understood how to bring her into close relations with pothinus and other rulers of the state and thus at last united all who possessed any power in the royal palace in an endeavour to thrust cleopatra from the throne pothinus theodotus and achillas hated her because she saw their failings and made them feel the superiority of her intellect their combined efforts might have succeeded in overthrowing her before had not the alexandrians headed by the ephebi over whom i still had some influence stood by her so steadfastly whoever could still be classed as a youth glowed with enthusiasm for her and most of the macedonian nobles in the bodyguard would have gone to death for her sake though she had forced them to gaze hopelessly up to her as if she were some unapproachable goddess when her father died she was seventeen but she knew how to resist oppressors and foes as if she were a man my sister charmian whom she had appointed to a place in her service loyally aided her at that time she was a beautiful and lovable girl but the spell exerted by the queen fettered her like chains and bonds she voluntarily resigned the love of a nobleman he afterwards became your husband berenike in order not to leave her royal friend at a time when she so urgently needed her since then my sister has shut her heart against love it belonged to cleopatra she lives thinks cares for her alone she is fond of you barine because your father was so dear to her iris whose name is so often associated with hers is the daughter of my oldest sister who was already married when the king entrusted the princesses to our father's care she is thirteen years younger than cleopatra but her mistress holds the first place in her heart also her father the wealthy crates made every effort to keep her from entering the service of the queen but in vain a single conversation with this marvellous woman had bound her for ever but i must be brief you have doubtless heard how completely cleopatra bewitched pompey's son during his visit to alexandria she had not been so gracious to any man since her meeting with antony and it was not from affection but to maintain the independence of her beloved native land at that time the father of gneas was the man who possessed the most power and statecraft commanded her to win him through his son the young roman also took his leave full of her as the egyptians say this pleased her but the visit greatly aided her foes there was no slander which was not disseminated against her the commanders of the bodyguard whom she had always treated as a haughty queen had seen her associate with pompey's son in the theatre as if he were a friend of equal rank and on many other occasions the alexandrians saw her repay his courtesies in the same coin but in those days hatred of rome surged high the regents leagued with arsinoe spread the rumour that cleopatra would deliver egypt up to pompey if the senate would secure to her the sole sovereignty of the new province and leave her free to rid herself of her royal brother and husband she was compelled to fly and went first to the syrian frontier to gain friends for her cause among the asiatic princes 
my brothers straighten you remember the noble youth who won the prize for wrestling at olympia berenike and i were commissioned to carry the treasure to her we doubtless exposed ourselves to great peril but we did so gladly and left alexandria with a few camels an ox-cart and some trusted slaves we were to go to gaza where cleopatra was already beginning to collect an army and had disguised ourselves as nabataean merchants the languages which i had learned in order not to be distanced by cleopatra were now of great service those were stirring times the names of caesar and pompey were in every mouth after the defeat at Dyrrachium, the cause of julius seemed lost but the pharsalian battle again placed him uppermost unless the east rose in behalf of pompey both seemed to be favourites of fortune the question now was to which the goddess would prove most faithful my sister charmian was with the queen but through one of arsinoe's maids who was devoted to her we had learned from the palace that pompey's fate was decided he had come a fugitive from the defeat of pharsalus and begged the king of egypt that is the men who were acting in his name for a hospitable reception pothinus and his associates had rarely confronted a greater embarrassment the troops and ships of the victorious caesar were close at hand many of gabinius's men were serving in the egyptian army to receive the vanquished pompey kindly was to make the victorious caesar a foe i was to witness the terrible solution of this dilemma the infamous words of theodotus dead dogs no longer bite had turned the scale my brother and i reached mount cassius with our precious freight and pitched our tents to await a messenger when a large body of armed men approached from the city at first we feared that we were pursued but a spy reported that the king himself was among the soldiery and at the same time a large roman galley drew near the coast it must be pompey's so they had changed their views and the king was coming in person to receive their guest the troops encamped on the flat shore on which stood the temple of the cassian amon the september sun shone brightly and was reflected from the weapons from the high bank of the dry bed of the river where we had pitched our tent we saw something scarlet move to and fro it was the king's mantle the waves stirred by the autumn breeze rippled lightly blue as cornflowers over the yellow sand of the dunes but the king stood still shading his eyes with his hand as he gazed at the galley meanwhile achillas the commander of the troops and septimius the tribune who belonged to the roman garrison in alexandria and who i knew had served under pompey and owed him many favours had entered a boat and put off to the vessel which could not come nearer the land on account of the shallow water the conference now began and achillas's offer of hospitality must have been very warm and well calculated to inspire confidence for a tall lady it was cornelia the wife of the imperator waved her hand to him in token of gratitude here the speaker paused drew a long breath and pressing his hand to his brow continued what follows alas that it was my fate to witness the dreadful scene how often a garbled account has been given and yet the whole was so terribly simple 
Fortune makes her favorites confiding. Pompey was also. Though more than fifty years old, he lacked two years of sixty. He sprang into the boat quickly enough, with merely a little assistance from a freedman. A sailor, he was a negro, shoved the skiff off from the side of the huge ship as violently as if the pole he used for the purpose was a spear, and the galley his foe. The boat, urged by his companion's oars, had already moved forward, and he stumbled, the brown cap falling from his woolly head in the act. It seems as if I could still see him, ere I clearly realized that this was an evil omen. The boat stopped. The water was shallow. I saw Achilles point to the shore. It could be reached by a single bound. Pompey looked towards the king. The freedman put his hand under his arm to help him rise. Septimius also stood up. I thought he intended to assist him, but no. What did this mean? Something flashed by the imperator's silver-gray hair, as if a spark had fallen from the sky. Would Pompey defend himself, or why did he raise his hand? It was to draw around him the toga, with which he silently covered his face. The tribune's arm was again raised high into the air, and then what confusion! Here, there, yonder, hands suddenly appeared aloft bright flashes darted through the clear air achilles the general dealt blows with his dagger as if he were skilled in murder the imperator's stalwart figure sank forward the freedman supported him then shouts arose here a cry of fury yonder a wail of grief and rising above all a woman's shriek of anguish it came from the lips of Cornelia, the murdered man's wife. Shouts of applause from the king's camp followed. Then the blast of a trumpet. The Egyptians drew back from the shore. The scarlet cloak again appeared. Septimius, bearing in his hand a bleeding head, went towards it and held the ghastly trophy aloft. The royal boy gazed into the dull eyes of the victim, who had guided the destinies of many a battlefield of rome of two quarters of the globe the sight was probably too terrible for the child upon the throne for he averted his head the ship moved away from the land the egyptians formed into ranks and marched off achilles cleansed his blood-stained hands in the sea-water the freedman beside him washed his master's headless trunk the general shrugged his shoulders as the faithful fellow heaped reproaches on him here archibius paused drawing a long breath then he continued more calmly achilles did not lead the troops back to alexandria but eastward towards pelusium as i learned later my brother and i stood on the rocky edge of the ravine it was long ere either spoke a cloud of dust concealed the king and his bodyguard. The sails of the galley disappeared. Twilight closed in and straightened, pointed westward towards Alexandria. Then the sun set. Red, red, it seemed as if a torrent of blood was pouring over the city. Night followed. A scanty fire was glimmering on the strand. Where had the wood been gathered in this desert? How had it been kindled? 
a wrecked mouldering boat had lain close beside the scene of the murder the freedman and his companions had broken it up and fed the flames with withered boughs the torn garments of the murdered man and dry seaweed a blaze soon rose and a body was carefully placed upon the wretched funeral pyre it was the corpse of the great pompey one of the imperator's veterans aided the faithful servant here archibius sank back again among the cushions adding in explanation cordus the man's name was servius cordus he fared well later the queen provided for him the others fate overtook them all soon enough theodotus was condemned by brutus to a torturing death amid his loud shrieks of agony one of pompey's veterans shouted dead dogs no longer bite but they howl when dying it was worthy of caesar that he averted his face in horror from the head of his enemy which theodotus sent to him pothinus too vainly awaited the reward of his infamous deed julius caesar had cast anchor before alexandria shortly after the king's return not until after his arrival in egypt did he learn how pompey had been received there you know that he remained nine months how often i have heard it said that cleopatra understood how to chain him here this is both true and false he was obliged to stay half a year the following three months he did indeed give to the woman whom he loved i the heart of the man of fifty-four had again opened to a great passion like all wounds those inflicted by the arrows of eros heal more slowly when youth lies behind the stricken one it was not only the eyes and the senses which attracted a couple so widely separated by years but far more the mental characteristics of both two winged intellects had met the genius of one had recognized that of the other the highest type of manhood had met perfect womanhood they could not fail to attract each other i expected it for cleopatra had long watched breathlessly the flight of this eagle whose soared so far above the others and she was strong enough to keep at his side we succeeded in joining cleopatra and heard that spite of the hostility of our citizens caesar had occupied the palace of the ptolemies and was engaged in restoring order we knew in what way pothinus achillas and arsinoe would seek to influence him cleopatra had reason to fear that her foes might deliver egypt unconditionally to rome if caesar should leave the reins of government in their hands and shut her out she had cause to dread this but she also had the courage to act in person in her own behalf the point now was to bring her into the city the palace nay into direct communication with the dictator children tell the tale of the strong man who bore cleopatra in a sack through the palace portals it was not a sack which concealed her but a syrian carpet the strong man was my brother straiton i went first to secure a free passage julius caesar and she saw and found each other fate merely drew the conclusion which must result from such premises never have i seen cleopatra happier more exalted in mind and heart yet she was menaced on all sides by serious perils 
It required all the military genius of Caesar to conquer the fierce hostility which he encountered here. It was this, not the thrall of Cleopatra, I repeat, which first bound him to Egypt. What would have prevented him, as he did later, from taking the object of his love to Rome, had it been possible at that time? But this was not the case. The Alexandrians provided for that. He had recognized the flute-player's will, nay, had granted more to the royal house than could have been given to the former. Cleopatra and her brother-husband Dionysus were to share the government, and he also bestowed on Arsinoe and her youngest brother the island of Cyprus, which had been wrested from their uncle Ptolemy by the Republic. Rome was, of course, to remain the guardian of the brothers and sisters." This arrangement was unendurable to Pothinus and the former rulers of the state, Cleopatra as queen, and Rome, that is Caesar, the dictator, her friend as guardian, met their removal from power, their destruction, and they resisted violently. The Egyptians and even the Alexandrians supported them. The young king hated nothing more than the yoke of the unloved sister who was so greatly his superior. Caesar had come with a force by no means equal to theirs, and it might be possible to draw the mighty general into a snare. They fought with all the power at their command with such passionate eagerness that the dictator had never been nearer succumbing to peril. But Cleopatra certainly did not paralyze his strength and cautious deliberation no he had never been greater never proved the power of his genius so magnificently and against what superior power what hatred he contended i myself saw the young king when he heard that cleopatra had succeeded in entering the palace and meeting caesar rush into the street fairly crazed by rage tear the diadem from his head hurl it on the pavement and shriek to the passers-by that he was betrayed until caesar's soldiers forced him back into the palace and dispersed the mob arsinoe had received more than she could venture to expect but she was again most deeply angered after caesar's entry into the palace she had received him as queen and hoped everything from his favour then her hated sister had come and as so often happened she was forgotten for cleopatra's sake this was too much and with the eunuch ganymedes her confidant and as i have already said an able warrior she left the palace and joined the dictator's foes there were severe battles on land and sea in the streets of the city for the drinkable water excavated by the foe and against the conflagration which destroyed part of the bruchium and the library of the museum yet half dead with thirst barely escaped from drowning threatened on all sides by fierce hatred he stood firm and remained victor also in the open field after the young king had placed himself at the head of the egyptians and collected an army you know that the boy was drowned in the flight in battle and mortal peril amid blood and the clank of arms caesar and cleopatra spent half a year ere they were permitted to pluck the fruit of their common labor the dictator now made her queen of egypt 
and gave her as co-regent her youngest brother a boy not half her own age to arsinoe he granted the life she had forfeited but sent her to italy peace followed the victory now it is true grave duties must have summoned the statesman back to rome but he tarried three full months longer whoever knows the life of the ambitious julius and is aware what this delay might have cost him may well strike his brow with his hand and ask is it true and possible that he used this precious time to take a trip with the woman he loved up the nile to the island of isis which is so dear to the queen to the extreme southern frontier of the country yet it was so and i myself went in the second ship and not only saw them together but more than once shared their banquets and their conversation it was giving and taking forcing down and elevating a succession of discords not unpleasant to hear because experience taught that they would finally terminate in the most beautiful harmony it was a festal day for all the senses i imagine the whole nile journey interrupted barine to be like the fairy voyage when the purple silk sails of cleopatra's galley bore antony along the sidnus no no replied archibius she first learned from antony the art of filling this earthly existence with fleeting pleasures caesar demanded more her intellect offered him the highest enjoyment here he hesitated true the skill with which to please antony she daily offered him for years fresh charms for every sense was not a matter of accident and this cried barine this was undertaken by the woman who had recognized the chief good in peace of mind i replied archibius thoughtfully yet this was the inevitable result pleasure had been the young girl's object in life ere passion awoke in her soul peace of mind was the chief good she knew when the hour arrived that this proved unattainable the firmly rooted yearning for happiness still remained the purpose of her existence my father would have been wiser to take her to the stoa and impress it upon her that if life must have a goal it should be only to live in accordance with the sensibly arranged course of the world and in harmony with one's own nature he should have taught her to derive happiness from virtue he should have stamped goodness upon the soul of the future queen as the fundamental law of her being he omitted to do this because in his secluded life he had succeeded in finding the happiness which the master promises to his disciples from athens to cyrene from epicurus to aristippus is but a short step and cleopatra took it when she forgot that the master was far from recognizing the chief good in the enjoyment of individual pleasure the happiness of epicurus was not inferior to that of zeus if he had only barley bread and water to appease his hunger and thirst yet she still considered herself a follower of epicurus and later when antony had gone to the parthian war and she was a long time alone she once more began to strive for freedom from pain and peace of mind but the state her children 
the marriage of antony who had long been her lover to octavia the yearning of her own heart anubis magic and the egyptian teachings of the life after death above all the burning ambition the unresting desire to be loved where she herself loved to be first among the foremost here he was interrupted by the messenger who informed him that the ship was ready. End of chapter 6